You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday. All right, so I'm taking the I'm taking point today, Kirk. Red lights on, and I want to preface what we're about to say to the to the good people that are running public. Oh boy! From the start, we've tried to maintain neutral stances on things that generally tick people off. Yeah, like we, we're we're pretty open about we believe certain things, but they're generally not really really polarizing ideas. But from time to time, I like to go on a little rant about things, whether it's the nutrition industry or uh, the fear mongering that some online coaches or weight loss professionals use. And you have something as well that, that, that fires you up. And, and I like that we stay away from these more often than not, because we're not trying to ostracize people. We're just trying to spread knowledge. But at the same time, if people are listening to us, they get to know us a little bit. And it's important to know the things that are important to us. And people are starting to get a, a, a rounder picture of who we are. And today, I want to give you the floor and, and go <laughs> off on a piece that's important to who Kirk DeWint is at his core. Uh, you really set me up there, didn't you? Yeah. Patrick? All right. Well, I've been, as we were getting ready to record, I was filtering through my Instagram messages today. And so this is something I go through every single fall. And it drives me nuts. So everybody knows, I talk about it all the time at this time of year, like I'm off the grid in the woods deer hunting. Well, I shot a deer and I posted a picture of it on the internet. And years ago, I didn't have to preface these photos. I could just say, look at me, I got a nice deer. I'm very happy for myself. And it was a great experience. But now I can't do that. And why can't I do that, Bracken? Because we have culture warriors. Um, so I'm going to preface this with three years ago, I had, I had shot a deer and I posted a photo of it and I had somewhere in the realm of 200 comments underneath that calling me a murderer and calling me all sorts of terrible things. I think I lost like 2000 followers in one day when I posted that, that photo. But, but the problem is, is that 99% of the people commenting or wishing I had died instead of the deer or saying I should go to hell or that I am a terrible human. I would filter through their Instagram and three pictures back is a young girl smiling with a steak on her plate with her friends out having a good time. Yet I am, uh, you know, a martyr for uh, going out and harvesting my own animal. So I recently shot a deer this last weekend and I posted it knowing the blowback. And of course, my uh, my Instagram messages blew up today. Mm -hmm. And... I just feel like people have lost touch with where their food comes from. And it's tough when you're the man crucified for going out and doing the job yourself. And it's something I enjoy doing, but it's something that I, I obviously utilize the animal. And it's coming from this the very same people who have probably eaten bacon and eggs for breakfast, and then they have a sandwich with meat in it at lunch. And yet I am a terrible human for taking responsibility over the animals that I take, whereas they don't even think about it. And so I've become very passionate about the subject where like almost all of you, unless you're a vegan, then you can tear me a new one because you can stand on your high horse. And I, I have nothing to say to you. You are morally superior to me. However, if you do consume animal products and everybody who sent me messages so far crucifying me does, how are they a better human than I am? Because they paid somebody else to kill the animal for them. And so I just think it's really important for people to like get in touch with the food they're eating. We've become so disconnected to what's in everything. The pepperoni on your pizza. The You love animals and pets, but your cat food or dog food has animal product in it. For example, if you don't consume animal product yourself. The house you were built on killed millions of bugs and displaced hundreds of animals. So the point being is that um, I think people need to stop and think a little bit about what they're eating and not see a photo of a dead deer and think that I should have died instead. I think they they need to speak. They need to think beyond the screen. That's my rant for today. It's funny because I'm not passionate about this. Oh, I know I get lots so of hunters. About it. I know lots of people who don't hunt and don't agree with it. And I really don't care. 
Mm-hmm. And so because I don't care at all, I feel like I can see the the black and white issue of this. And it's that we value cute things and we don't value non-cute things. Correct. If you squash mosquitoes, centipedes, spiders, um, if you don't care about fishing, uh, things like that, but you mm-hmm. care about a deer or a rabbit or a duck, it's only because it's more appealing visually. That's part of it. So I'm not taking a stance on either side because I really don't care. I believe that the farming industry, if you care about animals, is super cruel to animals. Oh, that's terrible. And I believe that if you really care about animals, you got to go all the way. Otherwise, like we, we can't pick and choose the cute ones and the non-cute ones. So that's my only take is there's trophy hunters and there are hunters who hunt for food. And I've never seen a deer uh, mounted at your house. Well, here's the thing is that. Yeah, I would never do it if it wasn't for using the animal. I couldn't bear to live my, with myself or justify it either. Um, and so I, I just think when it comes to to that, like uh, there's a lot of people just blindly walking through life, not thinking about it. And then they see something on a screen that they didn't want to see that day, which would be a dead deer, which I understand. They're mm-hmm. like, I didn't want to see that. I didn't sign up to see that. It upsets me. Why am I following this guy? Why could, did he do that to me? And I get that knee-jerk reaction. Um, but I, what I don't get is that people don't stop to think about what they're actually consuming in their day-to-day lives. And, you know, farm-raised animals, uh, we only buy free range, like when we go to the grocery store, because I don't like the thought of, like, animals right. in cages. So, for example, so morally, I think that is a better choice. You know, and any animal in the wild that dies a natural death is going to die a much more horrific, painful, slow death. All animals in the wild do. Um, than an arrow going through its lungs and dying in 30 seconds and not knowing what had happened to it. So I just thought that rant was worth talking about. Like, think about what you're eating. Think before you keyboard warriors type and like really do some self-evaluation. Like like the quote, there's a guy on, on the internet I follow, Cameron Haynes, and he's a big hunting advocate and ethical hunter. And, and really everybody, you know, you either kill the animal yourself or you pay somebody to do it for you. But the people who pay to have somebody do it for them somehow feel like morally superior to those who go out and do it themselves, which actually I would say is almost a little backwards. So um, that's my rant for the day. Think about what you're putting in your mouth. And um, that's it. Mm-hmm. That's We can leave it there. I will say that people get across the board more outraged over, over hunting than murder of humans. Isn't that bizarre? It is. So I, I would say this. Again, I don't have a dog in the fight. But mm-hmm. if everyone was forced to hunt once, there'd be more vegans in the world. <laughs> yeah. Like if you truly wanted to clean up the meat industry, you'd make everyone mm-hmm. hunt for their own food. Because mm-hmm. I've gutted a deer. Not even one I shot. I've never shot a deer. But oh. my neighbor did. And I helped him butcher the meat. Wow. And because I felt like I had to experience that process as a meat eater, someone who loves the taste of meat. I had to be okay with the idea of cutting it off the animal myself. And so I did. And I was probably 10 or 11. First time I did that. I've done it twice. Um, Again, neither Mm -hmm. time did I shoot it, but it gave me an appreciation for, I have to be committed to eating this meat. So I think that if we had more people hunt, you'd actually have less total animals killed. The ownership you feel when you're the one that took the animal's life is astounding. And when you don't leave food on your plate, you take care of it properly. You have a respect for what you're putting in your body and not to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but like, I'm not like a super religious human. I'd say I'm spiritual in a realm, but like, like if you want to feel close to God, like when you take like an animal's life and then utilize it for your own life, that's feeling more connected to like something bigger than yourself than anything. And so like, it's a way to just, I don't know, bring meaning to your refrigerator and I just think a lot of people never experience that. And it's kind of a shame. It's actually pretty cool that you did in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was nauseated at 10 doing it for the first time. And then at, at like 16, I did it again. And? It didn't stop me from eating meat. I realized that I I was okay with it. But I also understand why people would be turned off by that. It looks great in a cellophane package in the grocery store when you don't have to think about the whole process of a poor animal being shipped on a truck, stepping in its own feces, its throat is slit, with no accord, it's hung upside down before it's even dead and it's butchered before the animal's even two minutes removed from it versus something else. And people just don't think about that when they're eating their hamburger and they don't think about um, all of those intricacies that get that thing on your plate. So um, that's 10 minutes, Bracken. We should probably move to the topic of the day. But thank you for putting up with that. Thank you for putting up with that. And I feel like nutrition has come up a little more recently and we just, some it ties in there somewhere. Yeah. Well, again, it gives an insight into who you are. 
as the co-host of the running public rather than just a talking head about running. Yeah, that's fair. If anyone knows you, they know that you will retire to a cabin in the woods on a lake someday and only eat what you what you kill yourself or catch. I think so. To, to a degree, yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Segway. Great segue, as always. You good now? You feel I'm lighter? Great. I do feel lighter. Thanks, Bracken. Thanks, people, for listening. All right. I really wanted to talk about that episode of what does hard feel like you know going hard in a run how how should that feel at threshold at 5k pace on race day we got a lot of feedback from that but it begged the question what happens on the opposite side of the coin we talk a lot about polarized training and one major component to polarized training is easy in fact one could argue it's as or more important than the hard workouts are or at least the hard workouts don't matter without the easy. And so today we need to talk about easy. We need to balance out the equation. Yep, I agree. And the title, how like how should easy feel, is going to you know be much more acceptable as well. Not inappropriate at all. No, no, that's a little bit better. A little safer. Yeah, we get. I would say we get more questions if you really look back at like our messages about easy and recovery in the low zone two and one and zone three and what should I do and what does easy really look like more than the hard efforts. I don't think. We've got nearly the questions about hard efforts as we have easy. So um, we're going to milk this one, but I think we can I think we can touch on a number of topics with it. And so yeah. you wanted to kick off kind of diving into one aspect of it. Yeah. Well, so first of all, there's a lot of different notions of what easy needs to be out there. And that ranges everything from the true, you know, Scandinavian, Norwegian polarized training where it is very, very easy and very hard to something like Phil Maffetone with the math method where all easy is done at at max, as close as you can get to aerobic threshold. Mm -hmm. But what all of them contain is that it easy is not faster than aerobic threshold. That's the, that the upper limit. So the talk test is one way that people think about this. Other people think about this and some it's zone two and others it's mid to low zone three. None of that really is what we're going to dive into today because um, we don't care. There's so many different methods, but the important thing is that aerobic threshold is not exceeded on an easy day. Okay. And yeah, that's, that's a great starting point. And that's yeah. at the highest, very highest end of the, of the spectrum. Um, why don't we just like describe aerobic threshold just to preface? I know we have before, but just to preface the whole conversation, why don't you go into that back and there, I mean, this could be a physiological conversation, you know, with, with abstracts from research papers brought into, but the easiest way to think about this is that aerobic threshold is the hardest you can work by deriving all of your staying power pure aerobically. You're not tipping into anaerobic in that you start to accumulate lactate. You're not, you're, you're really not even generating much, so, so to speak of at all. You're just aerobically respirating. You could carry on a conversation the whole time. Essentially, if you're running aerobically, if fuel was not an issue, you could, can, you can maintain this all day long indefinitely. You could hold this pace forever because you're not tapping into anaerobic stores. Yeah, if it weren't for cardiac drift, you for sure could. Yeah, and um, just overall fatigue. But yeah. it is not anaerobic in nature whatsoever. So as far as like determining that, do you have any just quick pieces of advice for people? Um, yeah. In case they're wondering, before just before we dive into like the other parts of this conversation. Well, and I think that's important is determining where you where that number lies for you. Mm -hmm. The Obviously, the most accurate way is to get VO2 max testing done a few times per year, but that costs hundreds of dollars and a lot of people either don't have access to it or don't even want to pay it. You could also use your heart rate monitor um, along with Garmin's training software or several different companies make things that will estimate your training zones for you and it will tell you what your aerobic threshold is. I want to interrupt real quick going into that. Sorry. Um, with that, I just want to clarify. Now, I believe I'm like, let's say a Garmin or a Sunto or any of your Strava that you're connecting everything to. Your aerobic threshold ends at the high end of your zone three, correct? So anything zone three or under technically, I believe or close to, should be under your aerobic threshold. Now, you can correct me if I'm wrong there. I don't know where the technology's at. Do you have that answer? Like, hey, if I'm zone three or under, I'm below my aerobic threshold. And as soon as I creep into zone four, that is now surpassed my aerobic threshold. Well, it's tricky because different companies dictate their zones differently. So stride power meter, their zones don't line up accurately with Garmin's, which don't line up totally accurately with some of the other heart rate models. 
So generally it's zone high zone two or mid to low zone three is definitely aerobic and your aerobic threshold is somewhere around there. But without going into the specific company, it's really hard to say, hey, you need to be running zone blank because it's, again, it's like approaching that door, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just you bust through the door, the door is open and you're getting closer to that threshold. So everyone judges that threshold a little bit differently, which is part of where the confusion comes in. There are athletes that I work with that they know according to their model on their brand, zone three and below, they are totally fine. And there's other people I work with, like there's a guy who I work with who uses a stride power meter and it's almost a zone below where Garmin zones are. Mm. I don't think the technology does a bad job of getting you somewhat honed in. If you're doing mm -hmm. balance training and you're doing hard threshold or tempo work and you're doing interval training and you're doing easy runs, it starts like, I think mine's pretty close. Mm -hmm. I think it's it automatically calibrates as you go. And once in a while, you notice your watch will ask you, hey, do you want to accept this new lactate threshold number? Do you want to... Um, they can get you in the ballpark. I don't think they're like perfect. I think my zones are a little high, um, but I, you it's a starting point. It is. And like everything else we talk about, we preach doing your own research and your own testing. And it is no different for this. So whether using Garmin or Stride or Polar or someone's online calculation or a Phil Maffetone's method, you need to do your own testing as well. And so you either get into a lab or you run your own test. Now you have, I want you to dive into your test because I really like the one that you recently used. And I think you should tell the people. I'm going to start with the most basic one first, which is just go out and go for an easy run and talk the entire time. How, how talk, how much? Like talk the entire time with a friend. Like call your friend on the phone if you don't have one next to you. And, and have a conversation. And have a real conversation. Yep. And anytime you feel yourself unable to maintain that, hit a split on your watch. And then back off a little bit and find your easy, your, your zone where you can comfortably talk back and forth the whole time. And anytime you start getting right up to the edge of that, that's right around your aerobic threshold. And after the run, you can look at it. You can see where you average for the day. And every time you took a split, you can see the corresponding heart rate. So that's the really simple, easy one. It's going to be the least accurate, but you're not going to be more than probably five or six beats off. If you don't have any friends, you can just talk to yourself. Yep. Sing. The entire run. Sing. Sure. Sing along to a song. And so basically you should be able to have a conversation like Bracken and I right now going back and forth without having to pause really significantly between words or finishing a sentence. Yeah. I've also heard about the one where you have to say the Pledge of Allegiance for those of you living in the United States of America. You know, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. If you can make it through that length of a statement without having to stop and go, <gasps> Uh -huh. you're running aerobically. And it's something uh -huh. about the length of that. You know, it takes about 15 or 20 seconds. You should be able to converse for about 20 seconds without feeling the need for oxygen. So that's another good way, you know, talk for 20 seconds, 30 seconds at a time. And then, yeah, you can take a couple breaths, but if you can't make it through that, you're over your aerobic threshold in theory. But the one I really like, I got from Uphill Athlete. Mm -hmm. uh, training for the Uphill Athlete. It's a really good training book. And I've tested out others in the past. And this is the easiest one for me because it's simple and it's done on a treadmill. So you set your treadmill to 10% incline. And this is also what I like about it is it's really low impact. So anyone can do it almost any day of the week and it only goes to 10% incline. And so all treadmills can do that. Mm -hmm. So 10% incline and you close your mouth and the entire test is done breathing through your nose and you run really, really easy for 10 minutes like out for a Sunday stroll. Your goal is to begin sweating by the end of it. Just hope you don't have a stuffy nose that day. Well, and, and that's it. The caveat to this is that if you have a deviated septum or if you have sinus issues, this test will not work for you. There's a there's a, someone I work with out in California and during all the wildfires, their test was just awful. And mm -hmm. then there's someone else I work with that just has bad allergies. And so we can't use this test with those situations. But for anyone who has good working nasal passageways and no, you know, pollu air pollution issues, this is what I recommend doing. Now, is is that the first time that you feel the need to take a breath through your mouth? That's when you would check your watch and look at what your heart rate's at? So so there's a protocol for this test. Okay. So you do 10 minutes, just dog in it. Like four out of 10 effort. Move it up to five out of 10. By the end of it, you're feeling loose. You're starting to sweat a little bit. And then you hit split on your watch. And now you bump it up 0.1 to 0.2 miles per hour. 
It stays at 10% incline the whole time. And now it's an open-ended test. You bump up 0.1 to 0.2 and you hold for two to three minutes. And the two to three minute hold is key. And so I hold for three every time to be sure. If you're not in as great a shape, hold for two because you don't want the test to go on too long. But every time you bump up speed, your mouth stays closed because you're keeping it closed the whole time and your breathing takes a little bit to catch up. So your heart rate goes up a little bit and then it settles back down. So that's why it's important to hold for a few minutes so that you get back to homeostasis, so to speak. And you just keep doing that. 0.1 to 0.2, hold for two to three minutes. 0.1 to 0.2, hold for two to three minutes. And you just keep going until you get to the point where you feel this is no longer sustainable. I couldn't keep going like this. If I stay at this, I'm starting to almost gasp through my nose, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then you hit split again, you go down 0.1 or 0.2 to a more manageable pace, and then you hold for 10 to 15 minutes, depending on your fitness. 10 minutes if you're not in great shape, 15 minutes if you've been training a lot. And your average heart rate for those 10 to 15 minutes should be your aerobic threshold heart rate. Now, throughout that time, you change the miles per hour to stay at that exertion level once you start that final 10 to 15 minute chunk. So 10 minutes easy open-ended ramping up and keeping your mouth closed and then your steady effort holding just below that so you can say this is sustainable but it's about as fast as I can move while I can still sustainably breathe through my nose and it gets you within in my experience one to three beats of your true vo2 max tested heart rate that's as good as it gets without getting testing you know and you've done it twice now I believe in recent time I've done it five times and surgery Oh, you have. Okay. And your results have all been um, pretty close to each other, but also a progression progression in fitness should should change that. But tell people what you got in that those tests. So last year, I was pretty sure 148 was my aerobic threshold. This test, the first time I did it was 149, and now it's up to 151. Okay. Pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, very. And the cool thing about this test, because it doesn't tax, like it's, it's challenging without being difficult. It's not comfortable breathing through your nose, but this is not an anaerobic effort, so it's not hard. And you could repeat it as much as you want, but it also, since it's on a treadmill, and because you're all taking notes in our workout log now, I can look and say, hey, last time my 15 minutes started at 4.8 miles per hour, and now this time it started at 5.2 miles per hour. I am 0.4 miles per hour fitter at the exact same heart rate and exertion level. Now, this uh, test doesn't go to trash if you like hit that like breaching point and you have to gasp through your mouth for a few breaths. That's okay. Cause then you're going to back it back down and hold through your nose again. The whole test isn't for not if you end up breaching that, is it? Probably not, but you don't let yourself get there. As soon as you start to toe the line, you immediately go slower. Got it. And you may have to continue to slowly go slower as that 10 or 15 minutes goes on to not use your mouth. Got it. Yeah. And so your improvement over time, your heart rate may go up or change a little bit with fitness, but your pace at that heart rate will absolutely change. And then it's a really good way of judging your off-season progression. Some people do four weeks of base building. Some people will do 14. A really nice thing to do is do this test throughout there and see when your improvements start to kind of plateau. When your improvements start to plateau, you're not improving aerobically anymore. And conversely, throughout the season, you can do this test to check in and make sure, am I starting to erode my aerobic foundation at all? If so, maybe this is a good time for two to three weeks of aerobic building. So it's a really good, effective test that can be repeated really anywhere in the world that you can find a treadmill as much as you want to. So now you have this number. Well, I was going to say, and now is it a, tell the people, is it a good thing or a bad thing if that number increases or decreases over time? It generally will increase at first because usually you don't nail the test your first time and also your fitness will increase. And our heart, like anything else, does change its fitness. Mm -hmm. So your max heart rate, what you can access will go up and down over time, as will your lactate threshold and your aerobic threshold. So it'll move a little bit. It's not going to move a ton, but it'll move a little bit and that's fine. Now, do you have a way for people to determine their aerobic threshold based on what they believe their max heart rate is? Is that possible to do? It is, and I just don't recommend it. Okay, I don't know. I don't know what the formula is, so I'm curious if you do. I'm not even going to actually address it. <laughs> okay, because I know I've heard it thrown out there before, so I thought it'd be worth bringing up. There are percentages out there, and I, I've even talked about it on past episodes, but I don't want to muddy the water. It's just like saying 220 minus your age. Yeah, that the the correlation does not hold true for everyone, and I'd like everyone to do this test. So. Mm-hmm. 
there are ways to do it, but I'd rather never make a calculation if I can find the number myself rather than guessing. I agree with that. And I think this test is something that you need to do a couple of times, throw it in there, maybe even two or three times in a month yeah. just to see on a, on a recovery day, no problem, right? And or an easy day and see, see where you land. I think that'll get you pretty dialed in. Or, or you can take the average of three tests if you want to get a concrete number. The first time I did it, I did it three times in 12 days because I wanted to make sure I was getting that number correct yep. and that I was implementing it correctly. Um, so now you have your number. We have our upper limit. Yep. Now we have 151. And that is my do not exceed. This is my hard no. All right. I do not go past this hard upper cap here. But I don't even flirt with that because we like polarized training. And according to math training, you would probably sit right at 148 to 151 every single run. We don't, we don't, mm -hmm. we're not proponents of that. And so I, I lock 10 beats per minute instantly off. So now I'm down to 138 to 141. And that right there is my average heart rate and roughly what I sit at for all of my easy runs, at least for the first half to two thirds of those runs. So now the question is posed with a situation like this, you have your hard cap and then mm -hmm. you subtract 10 and that is your actual hard cap. Uh, we had this question on a Q&A and we have another one in queue already from one of my athletes, Natasha, who just ran 17.13 in her 5K I time I saw trial. that. Natasha, you stud. Very proud of you. That's real quick. She's going to be a problem for some people. I can't wait to see it. She ran last year, Natasha ran 18.26, was her 5K time trial last year this fall. Um, and I think we've been together for like six months. She's down to 17.13, going to be a freaking monster. But anyway, she sent us a question as well. And, um, and the question is one, you know, is it an average heart rate you're trying to sustain throughout the entire run, knowing that there's going to be some up and down based on terrain undulation, or when you hit a hill, do you power hike up that hill instead of run it? So your heart rate does not exceed 138 to 141 at any time, or is it the average of the whole run? that you're really looking at. Yes. <laughs> it's yeah. the average I'm looking for, but because I take 10 beats off, because I'm not a believer that working at the upper end of aerobic threshold daily will help you much compared to working at the mid to upper end mm -hmm. on a long-term basis. I don't believe it changes you as an athlete as long as you're hitting hard days intelligently. So I take my 10 beats off and I sit at 38, 40, 42 throughout my runs, and I can spike up to 148 on a hill now. And it does not change or compromise my workout, even though I spiked five, you know, eight, even 10 beats on a hill until, and if I hit that, that's when I start power hiking or, or I back off right away. So I have some built in, you know, airspace there that I can deal with. And that's why I like that 10 beat per minute cushion that you allow yourself for changing terrain or whatever the possibility may be. And I think that's smart, but I still think at the end of the run, you don't want to see your average above that 138 to 141 regardless. No, and I usually have one day per week, my midweek long run that I like to call it that, even if it's usually Monday or something like that, where mm. I'll run at closer to my aerobic threshold heart rate. But I've got two days on either side of that run rather than one before a quality day. So, mm -hmm. and even those, I usually run the first half of that run at my 10 beat negative, and then I move up and finish the second half up right at threshold. So, I mean, you have some wiggle room and you can do that from time to time, but every run is not like that. And that's the key there. And then I lop another eight to 10 beats off for recovery days. Ooh, when you're real trashed. Yeah. So suddenly I'm looking at 29, 28 to 32, 33, somewhere in there. And that's where I sit on my really, really recovery efforts. I think... I think the, the, the main thing that people we've drilled into their heads and you've heard it before, but if you go to like the math training versus maybe let's say what you're doing or suggesting, I'm a firm believer. And I think the science shows that really there are no fitness gains happening on, on aerobic days that are going to increase your top level fitness for racing or performance, which is what we really ultimately care about if we're looking to do well. So I believe that Erring on the side of caution, as you're describing, to get more out of your quality days is the only way to go. I know personally, because I've experimented with this, running closer to my aerobic threshold on all of my recovery or easy days, eventually those blur a little bit with your quality days, a little too much for my liking. 
and they end up feeling somewhat the same. When you get close to your aerobic threshold and you hold that for a while, I felt fatigue in my legs if I've done a 10 mile run at close to aerobic threshold. And then that compromises my next day. I just don't think that you're going to see the benefit out of flirting with that line versus just erring on the side of caution and creating hard rules for yourself like you just described and staying below them. Fitness is not gained on those days. It is only, if anything, impeded, in yeah. my opinion. So I just wanted to preface what you're saying with that because I, I just still think that, I, I don't know, I, I still think that people are trying their best to do it and I don't think that a lot of people are executing properly and I you know need to work on it too. So I'll go back and re-listen to this one, but continue with what you were saying. Well, just that, that in our opinion, which has some science backing behind it, yeah, strain over your numbers can have a little bit of benefit, but it can also negate your quality day regeneration. Staying under it hasn't been proven to impede your aerobic development, but it has been proven to absorb all of your quality day workouts so you can regenerate and get the, the adaptation from it. And so if there's a side to err, it's to err on the side of being recovered to work hard again. So we're not saying go out there and power walk every day if you're capable of running at the same effort level. But we are saying if you can run at, for my saying for me, I can run at 138 to 1, even up to 145 really comfortably, but 146 to 150 takes a little bit out of me. That amount it mm -hmm. took out of me was not worth anything that I gained from it. And so some people can get away with it for a while. But now you're starting to play with fire, whereas the other side guarantees you're not. It guarantees you're not playing with fire, and now you get to play around with how hard do I get to go on my hard days, rather than worrying am I going to make it to my hard days because I'm a little bit strung out here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and another experiment that you can do if for some reason you don't have access to a treadmill right now, which a lot of people don't or anything, is is you can just decide to go out. If you keep track of your heart rate and say, okay, I'm going to run this recovery run, all my recovery runs at 150, let's say, and I'm going to see how my quality workouts feel. And then the next week you can say, I'm going to run it at 140. And then the next week at 130. And then just make note of how the quality efforts feel and say, aha, like clearly 150 is too high. 140, uh, when I ran at 130 and made that my cap, you could keep it that unscientific and just mm -hmm. be like, wow, I popped my, I popped my workouts off of this 120 heck i have some people that run in the one teens 120s on their recovery effort you look at john albin's heart rate data you want to see what he does on his recovery efforts he'll be like 119 122 for all of his recovery work i've never seen him breach 130 average on a recovery effort even in the mountains which means he's power hiking most guys yeah. pretty good <laughs> so just food for thought there it is and 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 this is where we it everything kind of comes back to center the purpose of this is to allow yourself to go hard on hard days. And the purpose of hard days is to expand your limits and to do so progressively. And so the beauty of math running is that you don't have to have a plan. You can just go out every day and run at your aerobic threshold and just keep pushing the upper limits of that. And you just keep getting better until you stagnate. And then you have to guess on what to do next. With this, the beauty is that you get to always be ready for the next progression of training. If you're not pushing the boundaries on the easy days, you get to go hard on the hard days and the hard days get to be progressive in nature and lead towards a race goal. And so you're always diving into the nitty gritty of the why of the workouts and progressing intelligently. And it, it just kind of all cycles together. If you do this well, you get to do your workouts well. If workouts start going well, you're more engaged in the training and you're more progressive in nature and you can't wait to plan out the next cycle of workouts. And then you get to recover again and keep going. And it's very mentally stimulating and it gets you in touch with your training. Mm -hmm. I think people, the trap people fall into is that that endorphin hit when you when you hit stop on your watch and you say, oh, my average heart rate was 170 for my run and I average six minute pace and I feel awesome. That endorphin hit is gone when you're doing your recovery run. There's no instant gratification from that. And people get stuck with that. And, and what I suggest people to do, if this is something you struggle to work on, and this is going to be a constant conversation we have on this podcast, it's going to be a constant wrestling you're going to have to do with yourselves. I get it. Um, like ditch the pace. If you keep a running log, like get track your average heart rate. Don't worry about your pace and give yourself a damn gold star next to your recovery run. If you kept it under a certain heart rate and don't even like look at the data, heck I wear a heart rate monitor and wear like an old Timex that doesn't even tell you how far you went. 
and just ditch it because people get really caught up. And for some reason I'm losing fitness. I had to run nine minute pace to stay in my recovery zone. And it can be a mental battle for people. And really like that endorphin hit should, you should, or that, that should hit when you like, when you finish, you go, ah, 138 heart rate, heart rate average. I did it today. Mm-hmm. And be very satisfied with that effort. And if you can just like rewire your brain there, um, so you're not counterproductive, I think that would be super helpful. I have to not look at my watch on those days. I, in fact, I have to now, cause I get too caught up in pace. I will have to, I have to just pull up my heart rate and that's all I can have up. Are you the same way? I can't look at pace, time, heart rate's all I can see. Today I went for a run, felt like crap. Tomorrow's a workout day for me. And so I just scrolled through my watch screens until I got to the one that shows me, because you can personalize what it says. All this one shows me is cadence and heart rate. And that's all I looked at. Pace didn't matter. No, it doesn't. So again, this is why we like reverse engineering our plans. I have my end goal in sight for what I'm training towards. And then we script out what are the workouts we have to hit to be able to prove that our fitness is where it needs to be in order to accomplish that goal. So then when Kirk and I start a training plan, all we're looking at is our bolded quality days. And those are our building blocks. Everything in between, it's the Mark Botcher style where all that does, that's just me going out so that I can absorb last workout and get ready for the next one. So in, in our mind, it's not even a training day to day. It's like going to the chiropractor. It's like mm-hmm. going for a massage. It's like going to the hospital to get your meds. All that's happening there is body, is, is we're taking care of our bodies. So our workouts, our, our workout plan is driven by our bolded days. And so we skip from that one to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. And we just exist in between those. But that's the data that drives us and gets us excited. So that on race day, we can look back and say, I know I hit 5,000 feet of vert with this average heart rate and I can do this on race day. Or I hit six by mile at my intended race pace minus six seconds and I know I can do it on race day rather than saying, when I came into this block, I could average 620 on a hard day and now I can average 610 on my easy, you know, or 620 on an easy day. Now I can average 610 on an easy day. Oh, I can't wait to go out and see how tough I am. You know, that's kind of guesswork and you don't know what you've absorbed other than you got better at easy days. Whereas with the model of looking at progressive workouts, you now know exactly what you got better at and how it applies to your race. Mm, It's a great place for the colored pen to come in handy when you really are looking at just the highlights of your week. The quality workouts only matter. Your eyes go right to those workouts on the page. And the rest is kind of obsolete. If you do the task at hand, which is to recover, you're never going to go back and look at that data and 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 sit there and base your fitness or confidence or anything off of those recovery runs. It all goes back to those highlight points in your log from your training plan that you've built backwards and you go back and look at. And so like the one, the one thing I want to talk about that we haven't talked about yet in regards to all this is how should easy feel. And mm-hmm. we go, we always go back to heart rate, right? We go back to heart rate. We're not saying like, how do your legs feel that day? How does your mind feel that day? How does, you know, the, all the other factors, Really, when we talk about it, like heart rate or perceived exertion is the only way you can go, right? Like those are you really your two options. Yeah. And and so recovery runs sometimes do feel like garbage. You do have tired, sluggish legs. And it may not feel that great because you just trashed your body the day before. So heart rate is kind of the indicator of that. And I want to preface this with, a, with sort of a story. I, re- I remember I started a big strength training block on my legs years ago when I was running, I decided to filter it into my program. Well, my legs were sore as crap on some of my recovery runs and some other things. And I just couldn't go that fast because muscularly I was compromised. So I just did some slogs. And then I started noticing after I got into this routine that I was like popping workouts. I had done some local 5Ks and my times were dropping. I was feeling really good on all my big sessions. Uh, even though my legs had been kind of sore and I was a little confused. And then I went back and I looked at my heart rate data and because my legs were so beat up from this first initial training block, they held me back on my recovery runs and my heart rate was super low because muscularly I was just so beat up and tired that it didn't allow my engine to work as hard as it typically would on my recovery runs. And then finally that soreness would leave my legs and I'd have a race on a Saturday or pop a workout and holy shit would I fly. And I don't think it was necessarily the strength work paying off yet. It wasn't. It was the fact that my sore legs forced me to go slower and forced less metabolic demand on my system, allowing me cellularly to recover for whatever my Saturday race or workout was. And that's when I learned like, oh shit, that that's why. Mm-hmm. 
Are you tracking me there? Absolutely. Because we have different types of feeling bad in our legs. Correct. And muscular damage does not equate to exertion always. Yeah. And those recovery runs felt like garbage. Today. Today, I am beat up from Friday and Saturday. Mm -hmm. So Friday, (laughs) this is kind of a funny story. Not funny for everyone involved, but funny as in interesting. Ross and I went to go do a long time on feet hill workout where we were going to be hitting the descents pretty hard on these half mile, you know, very runnable descents. Mm -hmm. And there ended up being an active shooter in the area, which we didn't think was very close to us. We took a detour around the highway that they closed by and we went to this trail system and we were... We came up to the top of this rise and there's a lookout tower and there was a law enforcement official in tactical gear who stopped us and said, you need to get out of here. And he ended up getting caught about two miles from that point. He He had shot two officers already and was armed. Like it was kind of a serious situation, but we weren't in any danger. He, oh, he's, wow. he's, he's lucky we didn't come barreling around a corner, you know, we were rough and tumble. <laughs> you oh, you would have crushed that dude. Yeah. yeah we would have been heroes. So we left like good boy should. Mm-hmm. And we drove to a different hill and it was only about 60 meters long, but it was steep and technical. And we decided we can't get our time on feet like we wanted to. So we're going to take a pounding. So we went down the hill very, very hard about eight times. Yep. Did a kind of a little fart like loop. Flats easy, uphill hard, crested down the hill really hard and looped like that. And it beat me up so badly because it was that hard, jarring impact into the ground. And I was sore all weekend. And on my run today, I felt like death, but my heart rate was sitting at like 132. Mm-hmm. And I didn't care. My pace was yep. terrible because my body was still working through absorbing the workout. But when I come out the other side, I'm going to have way more redis- resistance to impact on those downhills than I would have had prior. And I haven't ruined it by beating my legs up further because I went really slow today. Yeah, that's another good case in point. I'll use one more. I, uh, I did my first mountain race in the U.S. National Series in 2017. We went to Monterey. I considered that a mountain race oh, back yeah. in the day. And the following weekend, I had the Chicago race, back-to-back race weekend. So I only had a week to recover. I'd never been more sore in my life after Monterey. I could barely walk for two days, walk the cobwebs out on Tuesday, tried to do speed on Wednesday, was still hobbled up off Thursday, shakeout Friday, and ran. Again, I looked back at that heart rate data from that week, and it's the lowest I kept my heart rate for like four days in a row on runs due to the muscular, you know, the, I felt awful. My legs felt terrible, but that does not tell you what your body's work and recovery and is ready to do. As long as that soreness subsides and that, and that inflammation goes down, um, you're going to be ready to go. And so the point of that is this whole ramble that I wanted to start was that how your legs feel, how your actually body feels that day may mentally be difficult. Like, you'd be like, God, it's such a slog. It's not like, oh, this is easy and my effort is easy. No, maybe you had a tough workout in your beat up or life's been tiring. Um, that's why we look at the heart rate data. The point I'm getting at is yeah. that's why I look at the heart rate data. Perceived exertion, that's the thing. That's where it gets cloudy sometimes yeah. when you have other factors coming in. And so we always go back to heart rate data because that's the safe play. Yeah. And so let's talk about that. Let's say that you're not a heart rate believer or you don't have a strap or you just don't want to become a slave to it. Because that happens. You get to the point where you cannot do a workout without driving yourself crazy over staring at your heart rate. And so you have to learn to feel it as well. So you're right. You don't feel it in your legs or in your arms or in your mind. You feel it in your cardiovascular system. And so if you're not looking to heart rate, the next thing you have to look to is the breathing test. How is my breathing? Is it relaxed or is it ragged? Could I have a conversation right now or would I be winded? And that is, in my opinion, it's about 98% as effective as staring at your heart rate monitor. It will tell you those things if you just open your mind up and listen to it. Mm, I agree with that. And that also goes for the other side of the coin. What if you happen to hit an easy recovery run and those legs are like popping and springy that day Mm -hmm. and you want to kind of go? but you have another quality session on the horizon. That's where that comes in really important as well. I have found that that rarity where you have a good, you have a quality workout and then you go for your easy run the next day and you're like, dang, I'm still springy today. And you want to kind of let it just go. Well, I have. And then you want to know what happens in my next quality workout. It caught up with me. Mm -hmm. It always does. So it it works for the flip side of the coin too. A governor on those rare recovery runs where you kind of want to run fast. Listen, save it 
for the next day when the real work is being done. So I found that helpful as well. Yeah. So the point of how does easy feel? Easy feels easy cardiovascularly. It may not feel easy mentally and it may not feel easy physically. You may feel sluggish and slow and heavy and brutal, but if your chest is doing fine, if your mouth, your nose is doing fine, you're doing it correctly. And I like to play this game with myself. I like to play, guess what my heart rate is. And I guess what it is. And then I look down. I love that game. As the training cycle progresses, you get to the point, you don't need your heart rate monitor anymore. It becomes rare that you surprise yourself. And that's a really good thing for people to know is what does this exertion mentally, physically, cardiovascularly, how does that compare to what's truly going on in my body? And you're right about the what happens on the days when I'm feeling great. Because there are a lot of people who will say like, hey, on those days you're feeling great, don't waste that. I don't want to waste a day when I'm feeling awesome. Go rip it up. And most of the time I don't do that. I don't think it's smart. But however, running is supposed to be enjoyable. Right At the end of the day, we should love what we're doing, and nothing is more enjoyable than feeling great at a fast pace, those days where you're just flying and it's effortless. And so people are allowed to do that, but you have to treat it accordingly. If you're on an easy day and you're ripping it up feeling great, you have to treat it as if it were a quality effort. So let's say it's Thursday and you had a quality effort the next day, now it gets bumped back. Or it's Tuesday and you just did Monday hard, now you start your recovery days. So instead of Wednesday hard, now Thursday or Friday is the earliest you're allowed to. And so you have flexibility in your schedule to do so because you ripped up an easy day. So you have to move back. If you stick to your scripted plan, but now you're not sticking to the scripted effort rating, now that's when you get into trouble. Yeah. And that that model works really well this time if you don't have races coming up and you're not on a super specific schedule letter rip. If you don't have races coming up where workouts need to be done on specific days, that's fine. You can push your quality workouts back and have a malleable schedule. I don't think allowing yourself to do that in race season with races on the calendar, then I think you really practice self-control. Right now, great. Go ahead. Yeah. And it's sticking to what's... I, I love the idea of teaching to the test. We'd always say that in school when you had teachers who really wanted their class to look good on paper. And so they would teach to the test. They would give them the answers in preparation for what was going to be on there. And they may, they may miss the learning targets. They may miss the steps that build you up to there because school is not really about having the right answers. It's about learning how to learn, how to think, how to study, how to go into any other situation and be successful. It's not about having the right answers on the test. So when you teach to the test, you usually shortcut the process. However, in running, I like the idea of teaching to the test while only building the skills that are totally specific to the race you're about to run because they translate to everything else, but you want to be prepared on race day. But if you're not teaching to the test, you're not ready for the test to some extent in running. So the point is here, the closer you get to the test, the less you want to be worried about how good you're feeling on your easy days and ripping up some days there. You want to be hitting your quality days accurately. And so you're right. I don't let myself rip stuff up during the season, but off season base building, that is exactly the time where if I'm feeling good, no matter what's on the schedule that day, I'm going to go out and feel awesome because base building is tedious, but then I just bump everything back a day or two. I sure wish those days that you're floating happen more often than they do Bracken, don't you? (laughs) There are few and far between. Yeah. You know what? Because you and I are the type of people that get their 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 quality days in in preparation for a race i truly don't care if i ever feel good as long as i'm floating on race day i know and well how often do you feel like you float on race day too what's your percentage there you know what the better my training block goes the better my or the higher my probability of race feels good Mm -hmm. whereas if your training's been patchy it's like rolling the dice like i might go feel good and perform well yeah. But I have just as much likelihood of not, right. and that's always trying. Um, uh, what other avenues of easy, this is kind of your baby here, Bracken. Um, what other avenues of easy do you want to dive down? I don't really. I think we've given a good amount of information. We've given a few ways to test it. We've given our feelings of how it should feel during. The final piece, though, is always the 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 best is the best practice for staying easy is if you're not going to be really like mentally invigorated by looking at your heart rate monitor or tracking your breathing patterns, just go out for a run with a friend. It's the easiest way to stay easy. 
However, it's also the most easy way to rip up a run is you get with a friend and you start talking about a race and you guys just start one step in each other. And the next thing you know, you're, you're running 10 K pace, go out for a run and talk the entire time. Everybody's got a slow friend. Everybody's got a slow friend, right? Yeah. yeah. Find your slow friend and make them your running partner on your easy days. And it's their quality day. I know a lot of people that have that set up. That is nice. And then it forces you to converse, which also keeps the talk test in check. Works very well that way. And you know, what, what, what do I do to keep myself in check? uneasy days. You run trails, don't you? Technical trails to just slow yourself down. Yeah, I get on technical trails. And then and then you, in your mind, can say, well, pace certainly doesn't matter because I'm running technical trails. Yep. And, and the twists and turns, it's uh, probably the the one of the easiest shortcuts yeah. to forcing yourself to run easy is to pick some technical trails. Yep. Yeah. And then all you have to do is work on cadence. You can, It's a skill development day. I'm not going to work hard. I got my heart rate limit set. I'm just going to work on keep my cadence up and my breathing light and now I killed two birds with two birds with one stone. Well, you talk cadence, and this question had come in. I don't know if we addressed it or not, but with the easy days, people feel like they're shuffling and their form changes and and all of that. Is that just just let it be? Like oh, I'm sluggish. Like some people, you know, almost feel a little stagnant after a recovery day. Like I was just like, now my legs just feel flat mm-hmm. and dull. You know what I'm talking about there? It's something people have to get over. I mean, my advice is like, yeah, it might, and you just got to suck it up. And if you are shuffling or you got to slow to a walk once in a while. Like who cares? Who yeah. cares? That's that's my take on it. Like it may change your gait slightly. I mean, we we like to think it doesn't, but for a lot of people, it does. Yeah, and and this is actually a point that I feel pretty strongly about. I feel mm-hmm. that we have to work on our great stride on recovery days just as hard as you have to work on quality days. And I don't care about pace, so that makes things easy. But in terms of hitting the ground underneath your center of gravity, putting power directly into the earth, being light, being efficient, those are the things that get me through my crappy feeling recovery runs. I slow down. I'll even stop, shake my body out totally, and start up again with a higher cadence and a lower stride. I mean, a shorter stride and make sure that I'm I'm mid-foot striking. And, and those are the days. Because I, I believe that when we fatigue in a race, we revert to the form that we use when we fatigue in practice. And there are people whose form does not change. It doesn't break down when they get fatigued in a race. And there are people (laughs) like myself whose stride looks vastly different when you are tired versus when you're fresh. And so a big point of emphasis for me is stride maintenance when I'm feeling crappy in training so that I can keep my strong stride during racing. Yeah, if you're always practicing it, then you will naturally default to proper mechanics when needed. That's my cue to remind myself to send Rich Diaz a, a message right now after this podcast. And that's that's a great guy to bring up because he is very adamant that heart rate training was the key to, is the key to unlocking your potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Bracken, guess who's got to go to work? You do. I, I do. Good guess. It's not me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm done with my work for the day. Uh, we're kind of working right now burning the midnight oil. All right. Well, it's been good chatting with you. Thanks for listening, folks. You will see us on Friday with a special one. That's right. If you have questions about this, feel free to reach out. This is one that you might want to replay during an easy day to keep you queued in. And if you have nasty stuff to say about Kirk as a hunter, don't send it. (laughs) Type it out and then delete it later. Yeah, really think on it. No knee-jerk reactions, folks, because you might get one back and you might not like it. We know that that Kirk fires back. (laughs) All right. See you later, folks. Thank you.